0: Classics, Kane Academy's podcast on classic works of literature, art, film, and music. I'm Andrew Swarneman, your host. In this episode, I interview Professor Gregory Naj, Francis Jones Professor of Classical Greek Literature and Comparative Literature at Harvard University, and Director of Harvard's Center for Hellenic Studies. Recently, I met up with Professor Naj at the Center's campus in Washington, D.C. He and I spent our time together discussing the study of classic literature, especially the study of Homer's epic poem, The Iliad. I hope you enjoy this podcast recorded at the Center's campus. This is part two of a two-part interview. The the opening lines of The Iliad uh, have to do with Achilles' anger. And uh, the focus that I think a lot of students and and a lot of students, because they're teachers as well, uh, typically uh, embrace is that it's the the epic is a focus on heroism, mm-hmm. and it's not that it's it's not one or the other. I'm sure, but but it is interesting that it opens up with um, a focus on uh, you know an invocation uh, for the mm-hmm. goddess to, to sing of, of the anger on of Achilles. Anger. Yeah.
1: So.
0: Um, and of course, his anger ends up wreaking tremendous carnage. And it really is uh, mm-hmm. kind of a world-changing, a mind-changing uh, experience to, to come to grips with this. So although on the surface it seems at odds with what is heroic, it is is it per, perhaps something else? or Is there a better way to think about that uh, than to... Uh, say, to contrast uh, the, the anger of Achilles with the heroic, or is mm-hmm. there a wedding of the two? Mm-hmm. How, how, do, how would you kind of guide teachers, uh, those of us who, who lead students, to think about that?
1: Sure. It, the the thing about manness, which is the word that we translate as anger, mm-hmm. sometimes people say rage, but it doesn't matter how precisely we translate it. Um, what, what we need to keep aware of that there are three different ancient Greek words that are translatable into English as anger. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to keep this very short, but mainness is one. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've studied it for a lifetime, and I'd say there's one book by Leonard Milner that really nails it. So the idea I'm going to tell you is not mine, it's his. Mm-hmm. Um, he would interpret Menes, the first word of the epic, as cosmic sanction. By cosmic sanction what is meant is um, an emotional reaction to something that is so outraging the cosmos, the, the world, the system that is the universe, that it causes, that it calls for a punishment that is larger than life. So usually the um the the personae who experience mainness are not humans they're gods huh. and the way they manifest their mainness which we translate as anger is thunderbolt in the case of zeus huh. uh, in the case of apollo missiles that cause horrible pestilence mm-hmm. and the list goes on before before I say more about mainness, let me tell you about two other words that we also translate as anger. One of them is cholos K-H-O-L-O-S. Mm-hmm. That's the easiest one um, because it's like bile. It's like you're so angry mm-hmm. that it's, uh, it's like an explosion of bile within your body. Mm-hmm. Not a pretty image, but very powerful. So it's blowing up. Can mm-hmm. I say it that way? Yeah. Then there's another one. KOTOS, K-O-T-O-S, and that's the kind of anger that goes tick, tick, tick like a time bomb. Mm. And it's time to go off at exactly the right time and right place, as in the case of Odysseus when he finally reveals himself to the suitors and starts the slaughter. Mm-hmm. Look out. Mm. So um, of these three uh, kinds of anger, Achilles at any given moment can experience uh any one of the three, but my favorite is when Agamemnon, this unworthy superior, social superior, he's certainly not heroically superior, but he's socially superior and gets away with things. When Agamemnon insults Achilles, he has a good mind to go up to him and smite him. And then what happens? Athena, who really likes Achilles, yanks him by his long blonde hair from behind, and says to him, and only he can hear it, no, not that kind of anger. Uh, Have Manus, Mm. which is this cosmic anger. Mm. And then what does he do? He sits in his tent. Mm. But the mental power of that anger is coefficient with all the powers of the universe. After all, Achilles is the son that Zeus never had. Mm. Uh, the, The whole point of Achilles is that if his mother had been married off to Zeus instead of a mere mortal, mm. uh, he would have overthrown his father.
0: So, so the kind of anger she's pulling him back
1: from is the second one, the, the bile that's about to explode? Uh, yes, because, yeah. because yeah. Th- th- then it's just yeah. a, a sto- one of thousand and one stories about somebody losing their temper yeah. a- in an argument. No. Well, what's, what's the
0: kind of anger? Uh, is it the river Xanthus? When he when he goes around the circuit, kills so
1: many Trojans, swells up the river. That's that's just pure rage. Yeah. So that is cholos. Okay. That's that's your bile. Yeah. And what what's very interesting about that is that after he's finished with all that slaughter, mm. um, he's so into it that he forgets to wash up. And not only that, but his uh. men who join in the slaughter, the Myrmidons, also forget to wash up. So then all sorts of pollution start. You, you, don't, oh, yeah. you don't have a dinner after a battle yeah. without washing up first, yeah. without washing off all the gore. Mm-hmm. But don't get me started on holos. Yeah. Uh, going back to Menes for yeah. just a bit more mm-hmm. about this cosmic anger, it is, as I say, coefficient with the anger of Zeus himself. And in the case of Zeus, uh, if If he were the direct agent of anger, he would just take his thunderbolt and and, and start incinerating everything sight mm-hmm. but uh, but here the um, the anger is on the part of Achilles and and so what happens is the incineration happens on the Trojan side. Hector is the agent of of Threatening to incinerate the Achaeans, Achilles' people and beyond. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. And so, so um, in a sense, um, you can't have it directly as a, um, a Game of Thrones scenario where where Drogon incinerates uh, the Iron, uh, the the Red Keep. Oops, I just did a
0: spoiler. That's all right. I, I haven't seen any of it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's all right. Well, everyone in the audience, please plug but, your ears. Plug your ears. <laughs> Forget y- that y- comment. Y- yes, <laughs> yes.
1: You can warn people in advance that a spoiler <laughs> is happening. But but, but seriously, uh, the, um, it all happens by way of simile, which can be so boring for students. Uh, I compare one thing to another thing, but every time Hector attacks mm. he is compared to a thunderstorm of zeus mm. and in a sense the, the enemy is the agent of the passive, of the seemingly passive anger of achilles which becomes activated because zeus is letting um, uh, hector be the agent of uh, all the things that the achaeans will suffer because they didn't honor their number one hero so when when it is activated in Achilles is uh, so is
0: manus in play, uh, sort of like the, the 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 other side of it meets uh,
1: the, well, the, the agency thing, of Hector. The, the weird thing is that that the manus of Achilles is never the the force that gets him to kill anybody. It, it it's the part where he's sitting in his shelter. Huh. Isn't that interesting? And I think one one of the worst um, misunderstandings. That's of what you meant by the passive anger. So exactly he has, right. So it, it's passive for him, but it it becomes active for the cosmos, and that's why uh, Leonard Milner translates manness as cosmic sanction. Right, uh, and. Because on the battlefield, it's going very badly for yeah. the Achaeans overall. Yeah, yeah. While, while Achilles is by the while coast, while he's angry, yeah. angry because there's there's a cosmic sanction going on. Got it. And yeah. and it just look out. Yeah. But what's interesting is once once he unsays his anger is is once he unsays undoes his manus, his cosmic sanction. Then the rest of the anger is is simply. Just exploding bile left yeah, and right. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh,
0: the uh, the we entered the war uh, in the tenth year, right? Yes. And that's a long time to be away from home, to yes. live in camps, yes. uh, to be in battle. Um, how is the weight of that passage of time and the
1: distance from home evident in the poem? Well, I hate to say it, but the poem tries to cover the tracks of the 10 years whenever whenever it's so desired. So I find it so strange that the catalog of ships happens in the 10th year. Come on, it should have happened in the first year and probably did in other versions of the um, the tale of Troy. Yeah. So why does that happen? Why is it that when we see Helen for the first time, it's almost like meeting her for the first time. So there's this very curious way that the Iliad, as we have it, foregrounds things that should have happened 10 years earlier but are happening now, or yeah. or shall we say, re-happening now. Yeah. Do you... Uh do you see textual
0: evidence uh, for an acceleration of events? You know, we sort of, uh, we, if we cut to the Odyssey and then we look back to the Iliad, yes. we, under, we we learn about the end of the war. We don't learn about the end of the war internal to the Iliad yeah. or we, uh, later yeah. on. But do you feel it? Do you see it? Do you, can you can you can you sense
1: that it's coming? Well, you know, it, it's funny that you said acceleration because I think you could also say. Let's flip the coin. Retardation. Why? Why is it that it takes forever to um, to have a resolution of a one-on-one duel? For, mm-hmm. for, first, there, fifty lines or mm-hmm. hundred lines. And it, it it seems that the more suspense there is, the more time you can spend on it. It's almost mm-hmm. like a close-up in 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 terms of filmmaking. Hmm. Um, and, and and in general, we can have a lot of fun playing with uh, zoom in and zoom out.
0: Yeah.
1: But uh, I've always been struck with how long it takes for the biggest duels, one-on-one combats to the death. Mm-hmm. How long it takes for them to to re- reach that that, mm-hmm. that fatal point. Mm-hmm. So, would you
0: not feel? that there's something like um, an accumulated uh, sense of regret or uh, despondency or Fatigue with the war on the on the Achaean side. It seems like at oh, certain I junctures, see. it's so there. It seems like I, I you see know, Agamemnon plays that game, yeah. and Odysseus kind of matches it at certain oh, well, we That kind of
1: mind game, exactly. That, that fails yeah, in, and and,
0: in Iliad too. And it oh seems like God. the Achaeans are are, are yeah. ready to head to the boats and get out of there. Well, okay. And, and on the on the Trojan side, sure. isn't it the case that the the elders go to Priam and they say why don't we just well, we're sick and tired?
1: Sure. yeah and we'll just give her give Helen back, yeah, let's bring it into this well thing. okay, uh, I, I take your point mm. and and I shouldn't have um, just backed away from from acceleration mm. uh, so fast <laughs> no pun intended uh, <laughs> but but here's the thing. Uh, I, I think this medium is capable of slowing things down and speeding things up. Yeah. Okay, I'll give a good example of speeding things up, which is in Odyssey eight, there are three performances by the blind singer. and uh, the first one is an entire Iliad, but it's 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 uh, the, it's narrated in ten lines versus the fifteen thousand plus lines of the big Iliad, which is our Iliad. Uh, and it's interesting, I've been studying it recently, is when that 10-liner is described by the um, the master storyteller. Uh, Demodocus sang about the Trojan War and this is what he sang about, and it takes just 10 lines to do it. Um, I think the first time I studied it, I didn't notice that there's all this approval reception we might call it by the people who are listening and they say do another one do another one do another one Mm. so um you see in a sense um the medium is capable let's use a slightly different metaphor of extreme compression Mm. and extreme expansion Mm. Uh, And uh, when you look at things in an expanded way, you can get sick and tired of it, but when you look at it in a very compressed way, you say, I want more, I want more, I want more. Mm -hmm. So you can have it both ways, I think. And and thank you for bringing me back to that, because you're right, there is acceleration as well as retardation Mm -hmm. all over the place. Mm
0: What would you counsel those of us who teach uh, to, to note about Helen? <coughs> you know, uh, we we see how she's dressed. We see ah. her exchanges with the, the women yes, of Troy. Yes. Uh, we know how she relates to Priam. We know when she goes to the edge of, of the wall and she looks out, and she she knows all the generals, oh, can name yes. them, right? Oh, so, yes. Well, what, what do you make of that? Uh, how should we think about Helen? Okay. How, what would we want our students
1: well, to, to move well, towards? I, I want to do two points, uh, two very different points. One is, and I love to play this game with, with people in my class, where there's a, um, a fragment attributed to Hesiod, so this is not a Homeric fragment, mm. that tells about the time way back when, when all the Achaeans were, were courting Helen. Every one of them wanted to marry Helen. And there was a contest and everything. And in this fragment, we are told the two people on the Achaean side who never courted Helen. And I'm not going to play with you on this, but you should try it out on the students. They never get, just as teachers never get, who are the two people who never courted Helen. One of them is obvious. That's Achilles, because he was underage. (laughs) But the other one, nobody gets, and get this, it's Menelaus, huh. because it said, Agamemnon courted Helen for Menelaus. How do you like that? Oh, wow. So this is, shall we say, Miles Standish and John Alden. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, if, if you like to yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to play with with non historical analogies, so that's one thing I wanted to say. Another yeah. thing I wanted to say, which uh, just amazes me, is that the medium that gives us our Iliad and our Odyssey is a medium uh, that evolved mostly in Asia Minor, and the dialect of Greek um, that transmitted this medium was Ionic. Mm-hmm. And could I just say, this is after a long study, that in Ionian uh, regions, that is to say, regions of the Greek-speaking world where people spoke the Ionic dialect, there there was no worship of Helen as a goddess. Hmm. By contrast, in Sparta, uh, she was worshipped as a goddess. Hmm. And uh, and therefore, and Homeric poetry can do this trick all the time. For anybody who has a divine parent, um, there can also be a variation on the theme where you have a human parent. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's perfectly okay in Greek poetry to emphasize one or the other. You can can have your cake and eat it too. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is anybody who is really puzzled by Helen in the Iliad had better take a quick look at, again at Odyssey four, mm-hmm. where uh, Telemachus, our mm-hmm. ingenue friend, yeah. uh, comes to the palace of uh, Menelaus and Helen. That quote unquote happy couple are reunited, mm-hmm. yeah. um, also happily married again. Right? Maybe, uh, and and there you really get a sense of how the Spartans looked at Helen and they worshipped her. Mm-hmm. But uh, in Ionia, uh, which is the setting for the Trojan War, she was not worshipped. Mm-hmm. She was not a goddess. So then, then uh, you have this wonderful um, razor's edge solution <laughs> where mm-hmm. in some traditions mm-hmm. that try to reconcile these two uh, very different versions that are really predicated on, on the realities of how people worship. So, um,
0: so what's the evidence in the Odyssey for the the Spartan worship of Helen? Because I mean, on one level, the, I she doesn't come across very well. I mean, the the exchange with Menelaus is, is is rough, and uh, she uh, she w- would drug uh, te- yes. Telemachus,
1: right? Yes. So he forgets, and he forgets and, and he... forgetfulness doesn't look right at that point of the story, does it? Oh, I'm not saying it looks right. Yeah. But all I'm saying is that when you look at, for example, the epithet system, that is to say, the adjectives that describe Helen, she's regularly there, the daughter of Zeus. Yeah. She is Miss Zeus. Yeah. And, and you know, okay. the country Western song, "I died I thought I died and went to heaven." Uh-huh. No, I think it goes, "I thought I died and gone to heaven. <laughs> And and that's how Telemachus feels. So there are all these illusions. Is wow, I've never seen the interior of a building like this. This must be Olympus for the gold and, and all, all the that. gold yeah, yeah. and all. So he's just dazzled. Mm-hmm. And, and so there are all of these hints. Uh, if you collect them all, okay. it's a pretty heavenly place, all right. so to speak. <laughs> huh. Good. Um, at one point,
0: early on uh, in the Iliad, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Priam is urged by the Trojan elders to return Helen. He refuses. What, why is that? Why? Why? And what is it? What, what do you think yeah. is going on with the Trojan king that he doesn't deliver the, the his city from the the very thing that uh, is the sort of the more immediate cause of the war? I mean,
1: this this could be over. Yeah, and I I don't have a good answer for that, my friend. But I do think that there is the question of saving face. Mm-hmm. That's not a good enough answer. Mm-hmm. But um,
0: is that because it's his son's daughter, or I'm sorry, his son's wife, yeah, or yeah, yeah, and and uh, does the, does the language also indicate uh, the Greek indicate um, uh, an affection between Priam and Helen?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I don't want to overdo it, but yes. Yeah, yeah. Is it is it two way? You know, is it she is she reverent,
1: affectionate, uh, daughterly towards him? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we're getting into territory where a lot of people disagree. So every one of my answers will be challenged by somebody out there in the world of people who who study this intensively. But that's my take. Yeah. yeah. Great.
0: A um, um, qu- quick side uh, conversation, maybe about Odysseus of the Iliad and Odysseus of the Odyssey, and I know we're we would probably get into a long and and um, complicated tangent about Homer. And as the author of the uh, the, but poem. you notice I've avoided it. Yeah, and and thank you for that because that would eat <laughs> up all our time. But you know, what, how do you do you look at Odysseus, uh, the 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 two st- stories as a continuum on on Odysseus, like the Odysseus of the Odyssey? Because mm-hmm. yeah, earlier you said you know, you really uh, I, I I think I understood you that. A better reading of the Odyssey is is to read it in light of the Iliad. Yes. yes so yes. is
1: that also the case for Odysseus? Yes. Yeah. Yes, and I can give a, an example where the behavior of Odysseus is very much in sync, both in the Iliad and in the Odyssey. And I'll have to go anthropological on you a little bit. I'm going to use the term trickster. Um, And I'm thinking of figures in the mythologies of a wide variety of people of the world, but Mm -hmm. let's stick to Native American Mm -hmm. uh, traditions. And I even know of one particular tradition that I want to uh, focus on, the Winnebago Mm -hmm. uh, in in, in North Wisconsin, Minnesota, Mm -hmm. and then spilling over into Canada. Mm -hmm. And and their trickster myth has it that... um, When the story is told, the trickster violates every norm of society from A to Z, Mm. systematically, one, two, three, A, B, C, all the way to X, Y, Z. Mm. And then then the narrator kind of steps back, steps out of the story, Mm. and says, okay, you've heard the story, now I'll tell you how... Uh, the rules of society were violated from A to Z. So the trickster, even though he does questionable things, things that violate the norms of society, is also the teacher for how to avoid violation. Hmm. So having said that, my favorite trickster moment for Odysseus in the Iliad is um, there's instruction in Iliad 9 Iliad 9 that the three ambassadors as we now refer them when they go to Achilles they should um, give a pitch to Achilles about why he should return to the war and the grand plan is for Phoenix the substitute parent to go first for Odysseus to go second and Ajax to go third instead uh, when you have a cue and I won't describe the cue, but it's actually one character nodding to another. Odysseus just steps in and does it. Mm-hmm. And um, my old professor Cedric Whitman pointed out, I think best, that uh, if Achilles had accepted the offer, the way Odysseus had formulated it, he would be um, he would be sabotaging his own epic. Because uh, the whole point of Agamemnon's offer, and Agamemnon says so, uh, in preparing the embassy is, if he accepts, that'll show that I am superior to him. And so even, even the part where Agamemnon says, hey, take any one of my daughters. You can have her as a wife. And I as a father, and you're a father, I always thought, wow, that's pretty giving because I'm very possessive about whom my daughter will marry but no this is a near eastern model where if you if you marry off your daughter to a subordinate king mm-hmm. that seals the subordination of that king that says you're you're just a vassal
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and that's what that's what would have happened to achilles we wouldn't have an iliad because achilles would have would have as i say um, um, dynamited his own epic. So, isn't it wonderful that Odysseus can get away with that kind of trickster behavior? Achilles himself says there's nothing uh, more hateful than the gates of Hades as somebody who says one thing and means another thing. Well, who do you think he's referring to? It, it's civil. They, they don't fight there. They do fight in, in the micro... Iliad of Odyssey 8 that ten liner I was telling you about mm-hmm. but not in the Iliad. Mm-hmm. So how's that under the surface? Now just a very quick example of trickster behavior but you can have thousands of them in the Odyssey mm-hmm. it's all over the place but I think my favorite is where he's a guest at the at the palace of Alkinoos, the king of the Phaeacians mm-hmm. and um, at one point he just gets up and, and there's this huge um, uh, serving of beef, and, and he takes out a carving knife and carves out the best portion, and says, "I'm going to give this to uh, the singer if the singer sings the right song." Well, wait a minute, you're not supposed to uh, be the carver of the meat. You're, you're not the you're not the host. You're the guest. Mm-hmm. So he he can mess up on who's the host and who's the guest. This happens everywhere. So, Odysseus, as I say, sure, the Odyssey stresses, highlights the kingly aspects and shades over the trickster aspects, but it's there everywhere. Mm, Very good.
0: Um, What do we, uh, I want to come back to a scene that we talked about just a little bit earlier. What are we to make of uh, Achilles' return to battle? I know on the one hand uh, that particular kind of uh, bile-like explosion of, of anger is at work there. And then he, he swells the river, and uh, the mm. river reacts. Yes. And so a, a couple of things that I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by, he, he places his spear down. He, he he moves in a circular motion, so he sort of forms a circle of, of death and then swells up the river. Are um, Is there anything more to that than uh, anything rich in symbol there that is beyond what's just on the
1: surface? absolutely. Yeah, so the uh, the spear uh, and the the circular motion. It's not so much the circular motion. I cannot address that. There may be something to that as well, but what I'm thinking about is just the bare facts of um, a story that says that a male hero is battling a male river. Yeah. Yeah. And it turns out that in many versions of that kind of story, uh, the, the river becomes, I'll use a $10 word, theriomorphic. That is to say, it, it, it assumes the shape of a wild beast.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And exhibit A is Heracles when he battles the uh, river god Achelos. Mm-hmm. And at the climax of that battle, the river Acheloos morphs into a bull, a raging bull. And then, this is one of many versions of the Horn of Plenty, uh, Achilles rips off one of the horns, and but let's not go there. Yeah. Um, what's interesting is a hero fights river god, river god assumes the form of a bull. Yeah. So, you're reading the Iliad, you're minding your own business, and there's Achilles fighting the river Xanthos. Mm. And then at the climax of that battle, the river, Mēmūken it roars like a bull. Mm. And that shows you how the Iliad, or Homeric poetry, has so many levels of understanding of hero versus um, river, mm-hmm. for example. And it can, in a way, the medium shows off. I can do it one way yeah. where it's, uh, it, it's uh, Achilles who stays humanoid
0: mm.
1: versus the river that stays elemental. Mm. But I can also do it another way. There, there seems something unnatural about the whole
0: scene, and some of the language, oh, yeah. at least as in the in the Latimer <laughs> translation is the one that I use. That I, I, know I use
1: too. I love it.
0: And and so uh, he's he's bent on evil action. Uh, yes. There's the shameful groaning of, yes. of the Trojans. Yes. So uh, this this sounds terrible. It just sounds like a breakdown. Yes. uh In the in the natural order of things. Yeah, and well, so is that. Yeah. Uh, so is that. That seems more than part and parcel of the, the male river versus the, the male hero, right? It, sound, it sounds like a, yeah. a calamity of evil, of an outbreak of something horrendous.
1: Evil, yes. But I would like to um, zoom out here and, and just try out on you a formulation that I've been playing with over the last few years. I wouldn't have said this 10 years ago. But here it comes, that in the heroic age, in the age of myth, in the age before our age, which is Mm -hmm. post-heroic, what happens in myth is not all good. And and sometimes even uh, figures that we admire, and I'm talking not only about heroes, but even about gods, Mm -hmm. can be very bad. And now I'm going to use an anthropological term that doesn't sound anthropological, which is pollution. Mm. And and by the way, to everybody out there, I recommend uh, an anthropological classic. Uh, It's called Purity and Danger, uh, written by Mary Douglas. Mm. If there's one book on anthropology you ever read, that's it. And and basically, it's about how there's a need in the post-heroic world to uh, purge ourselves of all the bad things that happen in the heroic world. Hmm. And and that includes people we admire like Achilles. Hmm. Uh, I was talking earlier about how Achilles doesn't wash up after battle, but he does many other things that are polluted and polluting. Mm -hmm. For example, executing prisoners of war, on the funeral pyre of Patroclus. Mm. Is that going to make that ritual a good ritual? No, he's mm. polluting it, he's mm. ruining it. And in a sense, um, that's what the heroic age is. Mm. It's I'm going to make up this percentage, 90% morally admirable, and 10% hor- horrifyingly um, repulsive. and mm. And our job, and when I say our, I mean, Let's say fifth-century Athenians were listening to the Iliad and Odyssey in Athens. Mm. Uh, our job is to purge ourselves of the polluting parts, and we have to do that over and over and over again. Mm. Uh, and, and there's plenty of positive there that we, we know what what has to be processed and what doesn't. As the as the
0: as Oedipus the king is unfolding, uh, and it becomes evident. Um, that someone in the city is the problem in the yeah. term pollution. Yeah, yeah. So the pollution has to be purged from the city. Has to be purged. Yeah, yeah. Has to be purged. We we just have a little bit of time left, and I I wanted to get let's get to the end of the Iliad and to we'll to, never get to the end of the. Iliad. But really, yes, of course. <laughs> but but I, I'm and, kidding and it's, you. Yes, it's, let's It's do killing that. me that I'm that I we have to <laughs> draw this to a conclusion. But maybe another day, huh? Yeah. So, but let, let's talk about two things. Yes, there's the. Um, there's the death of Hector, yes. and uh, it, it's preceded by, uh, among other things, it's preceded by a very tender scene when he, for all intents and purposes, says goodbye to his wife oh, and it's his baby. And just a, oh, it's beautiful. such a, a wonderful scene, and then Hector goes out, and you know he's the great protector of the of, of Troy, and then uh, you know his nerve breaks. He he, and he we see yeah. him running in fear. Yeah. So I I wanted I just thought it would be wonderful if you could kind of coach us as teachers to kind of, how do we lead our students through that? It, it's a jarring piece of, of um, story, I think, for, for young readers. Yes. And then, the, and then following that, we see a very poignant scene that it's not jarring, but it's probably even more complicated for students to grasp, and that is the scene between Priam and Achilles. So, I just thought if we could spend a few minutes, I'd love to hear what you have to say about those two scenes, which are, I, I, I know you could give uh, <laughs> hours and hours to that, but why don't, you, why don't you coach us on how to approach those?
1: And I can do it in minutes yeah. uh, because it's that strong that I should be able to do it in minutes. Let me start with uh, 24. Is uh, here's a situation where uh, Achilles has been brutal. And by brutal, I mean beastly. I mean acting like a wild animal. Hmm. He has been so enraged. He's like a rabid uh, wolf, let's say. Um, and uh, and here's, here's the father of Hector uh, trying to appeal to this person's sense of pity. Hmm. And what you have in Iliad 24 is, descend, is, is ascending from the depths of brutality and, and beastly... Uh, behavior to the heights of humanism, and how does it happen? It's because uh, Priam says, "What would your father think?" Mm. And suddenly, oh, I have a father, mm. and and he would be crying for me. Mm. And suddenly, the dots connect, mm. and 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 he weeps. Mm. Uh, and and I think it's one of the most beautiful. Um, Affirmations of humanity mm. that that you can go from the lowest to the highest mm. and show compassion, mm. and it's interesting. Then you realize that when he's weeping for his friend and for his father, well, his father is his pater, and his friend is Patroclus, he who has the glory of the ancestors. Mm. So, in other words, it's a reaffirmation of respect for the ancestors. Mm. Isn't that beautiful? Wonderful. So, so um, it, it's a lovely resolution um, that is very satisfying. And now I go to the other part of your question that goes all the way back to six, uh, where um, um, Hector is the family man who says goodbye to his wife and his child. And it is, I think, the most heart-rending moment. Interestingly, at the end, he's got a perfect funeral something that Achilles couldn't give his best friend, Patroclus, in 23.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Hector, the most hated person for Achilles, for the entire extent of the epic until the end, he gets a perfect funeral, and that's how the Iliad ends. Mm -hmm. So, I I must say, uh, the humanism of the Iliad just astounds me. Mm Because we're all, all of us, um, we're vengeful people. We love to see bad guys really get their due. Um, uh, we, we tend to look aside when a, uh, an evil person suffers and dies. Mm-hmm. But, but here, um, w- what you have is the enemy, somebody that Achilles loves to hate, become the, the, the actual way for him to humanize himself. And that's pretty grand, mm. and, and that's why I would say everybody should give the Iliad a chance uh, and not simply start with the Odyssey, although it's a fun way to go about it, start with the Odyssey and then, okay, I'm ready now. I'll do the Iliad. It yeah. doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. <sighs> Professor Naj, thanks so much. It was a real privilege to spend some time with you. I am so grateful, and I'm sure so are our listeners.
1: And and you know what? Thank you, dear colleague. It it takes a really good teacher to bring me out like this. And and, uh, and I really appreciate your patience with me.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Classics. We have other great episodes coming soon, so keep the conversation going and bring your family and friends. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. If you want to learn more about this episode's topic, please visit our website shop where you will find the Cana Academy guide on how to teach Homer's Iliad. You can find the shop at www.canaacademy.org. The producer of this podcast is Helen Desels Zorneman. This is Andrew Zorneman, your host, For all of us at Kena Academy, thanks for listening to Classics.